quickly to begin with, um, the Foots, by the way, they are a couple in our church, kind of an older couple. They've been around for a while, and uh, he oversees our um, missions and all that. Great couple. I feel like God's uh, done a lot of great things to their lives. So I think the panel that we have kind of laid out will hopefully be a, a great blessing for you guys. It really is an opportunity. We want you guys to be able to ask questions because we realize sometimes, you know, we can make these sort of like assertions as to what we're learning and what we kind of think the Bible has to say about parenting. But really, the, the real kind of warp and woof of all this is what you guys are dealing with. We want to kind of know how we can sort of pinpoint strategically and specifically what you guys are wrestling with, what you're dealing with. And we're going to do the best that we can to try to help answer some of those questions. And so um, go deep, wide, as broad, as far as you want, as personal as you want. So I, I say that now to kind of preface all of this is because what I'm going to say, I'm kind of looking at what I'm doing is sort of uh, breaking up the soil um, with what I'm able to do to try to kind of get the soil uh, broken so that when the seeds go in there, uh, you guys will start having some thoughts kind of come into your mind. So my encouragement to you would be to sort of write some of these things down, some questions that kind of come to your mind. I mean, whatever they are. I mean, it would be like, you know, how do you spank kids or do you spank kids? Should you spank kids? Is it bad? Is it good? Uh, discipline. How do you develop, you know, a good balance between being a good parent like a friend or a disciplinarian, things of those natures, uh, things of that nature. Uh, we want to be able to do, do the best that we can to try to address some of those things and help answer some of those things. Um, the other thing I want to say, sort of by way of uh, preface, is um, I don't in any way claim to know anything, to be quite honest with you. It's just like, I, I'm, I'm in this journey just as much as all of you guys. I, I got two daughters. Uh, my oldest is going to be starting high school in the next few weeks. My youngest is going to be going into seventh grade, so junior high. And high school, that's where my daughters are at. I've been married uh, 19 years, going on 20 years. Um, I still feel, to be quite honest with you, JV. All right? I feel like a rookie in a lot of this type of stuff. I'm still trying to figure it all out myself. And I still realize there's a lot of things that I don't know. Um, I always tell people straight up, I'm just like, I feel like everything I know about parenting right now and everything that we are doing as parents right now is nothing more than theoretical. It's, and honestly, I'm just like, I, I mean, I, stuff that I've read, stuff that I've listened to, in my opinion, everything that we're doing right now is just sort of theoretical. Um, I'm, I'm happy with the relationship that I have with my kids. I, got, I feel like i got a great relationship with my kids. Um, if you don't believe me, you can ask my wife. Hopefully, she might be able to give you a little bit better perspective. I mean, if you really want to know the truth, always ask the wife. Always. Like, if you want to kind of figure out how the marriage is, don't ask the dude. Ask the woman. She'll always tell you what's up. And so the reality is, same thing with parenting. Um, so I don't, I don't say that by any way of, like, boasting or anything. But just, I, I love my kids. I feel like we got a good relationship but that, that to be being said, there's a lot of areas um, I'm overly critical of. I'm well aware of where my failures are. And uh, I'm, I'm more than happy to share those things with you. Um, that being said, i got one more premise uh, to kind of jump on into this whole thing. I, I look at parenting, the stuff that we're going to be covering, as this big, massive ocean. To be quite frank with you, it's kind of hard to kind of figure out where to jump in. And I don't even know how long I'm supposed to be speaking for. How long? 750, okay, because I can just keep rambling on for the next three hours and barely scratch the surface of this whole stuff. So what I want to try to do is, is realizing and kind of preparing for this, there's so much to cover, so much to talk about this particular issue that I, I think, you know, we can have part one, part two, part five, part 20 and barely scratch the surface on this type of stuff. And so I'm, I'm going to try to share with you the stuff that's kind of been the most meaningful to me. It might feel a little bit like uh, jumping from one subject to the next, um, but hopefully there's going to be a continuity to all of it. That's, that's really my main goal, is to kind of provide some sort of a backbone, a continuity to it, so it's not all disjointed, so that you guys can sort of follow along a little bit as to where we're going. And uh, so hopefully you, can guys, you guys can make some sense out of it, and hopefully be encouraged by it. And uh, depending upon where your kids are at, what age they're at, I mean, if they're young kids, hopefully you can learn some of this stuff and think about it, at least just sort of, that, like I said, it would be like a seed in your mind, in your heart, that it will begin to grow in, into something really good, so that as your kids get older, uh, you can, you know, be learning where we're at, or if your kids are already older, what not, or if they're on the same age as my kids, you know, can implement, whatever. Again, I don't claim to have any answers, everything's in theory, so with that being said, um, my wife and I both really realize the utter importance of just God taking all of the stuff that we try to do and sort of our measly efforts 
and just really empowering it so that God's glorified through it, so that at the end of the day, our kids see Jesus. That's really our, our, our main goal in our family. So with that being said, I'm going to jump in. I'm going to pray first, and then we're going to get to work. I have a couple passages of scripture I'm going to read to you guys, and then we've got a bunch of stuff that I'm going to try to um, throw out at you guys, and hopefully you guys will be blessed by it. So let's pray. Father, right now, we just want to commit this whole time in your hands. We just recognize we need, we need your help more than anything. God, we are desperate uh, to just look to you. God, we thank you that even though uh, there's a lot of stuff that we don't know about, and even though there's going to be some stuff that's going to be said here, but at the same time, the overwhelming weight of stuff that really could be said is not going to be said here tonight just because of time. So, Lord, really at the end of the day, what we need more than anything is just the empowering of the Holy Spirit. We can't do this on our own. God, we realize that children are a blessing, but at the same time, um, there's a responsibility attached there that, frankly, Lord, all of us, I'm sure, we, we feel quite underprepared for the task of parenting. And really, even in any way, parenting in a way that's going to be effective or helpful or beneficial to our kids so that they actually turn out better than we are. So, Father, we need your help. We need your strength. Pray that you just help the words that I say to be an encouragement uh, to my brothers and sisters here, we pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read a couple verses to you guys. The first one, uh, two verses. The first one is going to be out of uh, the book called Malachi. It's the last book in the entire Bible. And then also probably a more passage, a passage that's more, um, you know, knowledgeable to most of you guys. It's out of the book of Ephesians chapter 6. The first one, Malachi, I'm going to read this to you. It's kind of written in sort of a way that God writes to the people of Israel. It's kind of more of a rebuke. And you'll see, you'll kind of catch that tone in just a second. It's sort of a strong, stern type of a rebuke that God brings against his people. And then the uh, passage I'm going to read about by Paul the Apostle in the book of Ephesians is more uh, instructional. It's more of a, a, a didactic where Paul is trying to help people to kind of walk along the path of learning how to uh, understand what it means to train up their kids. Okay, the first one is this. I'm going to read, it to, read this to you out of the New Living Translation. I think this kind of captures the element a little bit easier than uh, the ESV, which is what I normally read out of. But here's what it says. <clears throat> God says this. Here's another thing that you do. So God, this, again, the tone is rebuke. It says, you guys cry out. And it says, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? So children of Israel, they're going to God, they're crying, they're singing praise songs, they're worshiping, and whatever it is that was going on in their life, they felt as if nothing was happening. They felt as if their prayers were sort of hitting just the ceiling, nothing was happening, nothing of change was taking place in their life. They felt distant from God. Maybe, you know, the way that it was sort of interpreted back in their day uh, meant, you know, they weren't getting rain for the crops, um, their cows weren't being fruitful, no milk was coming out of their goats. You know, type of stuff that was like pretty important for them back in the day. They're looking at all this stuff and they're just kind of wondering. We're like, we're praying, we're seeking God, we're singing songs of worship, but nothing's happening. So God's like, you want to know what's up? I'll tell you what's up. He said, uh, there's another thing that you guys do. You guys, you guys cry out. Why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? And here's what God says. I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows that you and your wife made when you were young. But you've been unfaithful to her. So God says to the men, in particular, he says, you guys... You've been faithful to your wives. You've been good husbands. You have not been leading your spouses well, but it gets more intense. God says, didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? So God's asking these questions. So think of the term of Job being sort of inquired by God. You know, the whole book of Job, Job's asking all these questions. His good buddies are asking all these questions. And all of a sudden, so the whole book of Job makes this radical turnaround. At the very end, God turns to him and he starts asking Job questions. He's like, look, I'm going to ask you a few questions. So that's what God's doing here. He says, didn't the Lord make you one with your wife in body and in spirit? And his, uh, in, in spirit, and are you his and what does he want? Then here's what God says. He's asking uh, sort of the question, what does God want? Here's what God wants. He wants godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Be loyal to your wife of your youth. God says, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart so that you do not be unfaithful to your wife. So you might be like, that's kind of a random passage. But what I want to tell you that I think is really important about this passage is God speaking to his covenant people. And he's like, look, the reality is this, is that when you guys said I do at the altar, God says, I was there. I was part of that whole ordeal. I was part of that whole ordinance. I was part of that whole establishment of this covenant taking place 
I was part of that. And you guys entered into covenant with me, and you guys entered into covenant with each other. The problem was, is he's speaking to the men right now, he's just like, you guys haven't been faithful. So whatever, whatever it was, you know, whether it was you know, a dude going out after another woman, or pornography, whatever the situation was, there's some sort of uh, essence of unfaithfulness there that God's rebuking them for. And then God basically says, look, don't you know, the number one thing that I really wanted from you guys as a husband and wife, is I wanted godly kids. I wanted kids that love Jesus, even though Jesus wasn't around back then. He's like, I want kids that look to the Messiah. I want kids that love me. I want kids that follow me. I want kids that are seeking after covenant relationship with me. But what was hindering that, or what was hampering that, was the relationship between husband and wife was not good. It was all messed up. It was out of whack. It was out of order. Um, Things weren't moving properly and progressing properly. And instead, sort of they're intending the idea of divorce. And God's like, I hate divorce. I mean, it's a pretty firm statement from God. Again, this is not sort of a marriage issue. I can go off on a major tangent on this, but I'm not going to. But the reality is, is that all of this is sort of intertwined. So <clears throat> what I want to basically establish with this whole concept here is that God is basically saying, I set up marriage uh, primarily as an institution of developing this arena for training. It, it, it's the community. It's the primary training community to raise up Godly sons and daughters. Does that make sense? It's kind of what God's saying here. But the whole point is that that whole institution, that whole system, that whole community called the family is, in, is always in danger of fragmenting, is always in danger of breaking down, is always in danger of being destroyed because husband and wife not getting along, not working out. Not loving each other, not serving one another. Husband, you know, being unfaithful in whatever types of ways he is. And whether it be a mistress called pornography, whether it be a mistress called my job, whatever the case is. So I'm going to be teaching, not so much preaching, but every once in a while I might slip and preach a little bit and yell at you. But I'm going to be trying primarily to just kind of keep this more teaching. But what I want to basically say is that God sets this whole institution up because he says, I want godly kids, godly sons and daughters. And they come out of, or birthed out of, this institution called marriage. Between a husband and a wife, dude who loves his woman, woman who loves her man. Okay? Uh, I'm going to jump ahead to the last passage. I'm going to start making some statements on this. So Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4. Again, it's one of those uh, common passages that most of you guys are familiar with. It says this. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the, disi- in the discipline, in the instruction of the Lord. So here's the thing I want to basically say again is this. The primary uh, learning and growing community that God has established in all society is the family. You understand that? So God sets the family as being sort of this primary means to develop godly children. So kids are birthed into these families, husband and wife, love each other, husband and wife who learn to work things out learn to deal with their garbage, and learn to love each other in the midst of this covenant relationship by loving one another, by forgiving one another, by moving forward through things. This is one of the reasons why sin, uh, FYI, is really bad for marriages. Sin destroys marriages. It wounds hearts, and it causes people to get embittered, or it causes people to not want to become forgiving. And it destroys things, and that breaks down this whole family community and therefore, godly children don't become the byproduct. It doesn't come out that way. It doesn't happen that way. It doesn't affect that way. So this is one of the reasons why, I think from even a spiritual type of a perspective, we can look at it and say, God really cares about the family. God really cares about this institution called, or this community called the family, because he realizes that, or sees that this is sort of the primary means by which all of this is going to happen. All right, so with that being said, I want to break this down for you guys, and, and basically three ways, three ways to kind of look at this. So, you know, as I was kind of chewing on this, that sometimes I think, especially in our world, you know, we're always looking for reasons or excuses as to why things are all messed up. And I think sometimes even we do this even within the family. We do this within the church. Uh, we do this in any types of community that we're part of. I think in primary uh, situation or example, even with a family, people can be like, look, the biggest, most dangerous, uh, evil to impact our families from the outside. You know, it's, you know, if you're like old school fundamentalists, it's like, it's cable television. That's what's going to destroy my kids. 
You know, it's like Madonna, she's the great evil, right? Or, you know, the equivalent of today's, you know, Justin Bieber, Bieber Fever, right? He's the bad dude who's going to somehow bring wickedness and evil into my family. Or bad movies, or whatever the case is, or reading books, or whatever the case is. And so we always are looking for some sort of reasons to try to say, this is what's going to pervert or destroy my family. But I, I just want to throw this out to you to think about this. What if the number one evil that will destroy our families is not out there, but it's our failure to actually live this, these passages out seriously. It's our failure to see the fact that God hates divorce. Our failure to see that God hates it when the family unit is broken down. And our failure to really take seriously the reality that this is to be primarily an institution that trains up and raises up kids uh, to become godly sons and daughters. What if that's the real evil? It changes the whole game, doesn't it? It changes the way that we look at things, doesn't it? It causes us to realize that, you know what, rather than trying to find the evil out there or what somebody's doing to my kids or what somebody's doing to my family, it causes me to, first of all, look at myself and say, what am I doing? Is it me? Is there something inside me that's not taking this seriously, that's not setting a structure in my family that's going to properly facilitate and bring about godly sons and daughters? All right, so that being said... I basically want to give you guys three things to kind of look at. The way this is going to work out is I'm going to give you three things, three words. The word stewardship, I kind of try to make this easy for you guys to think about it. Stewardship's the first word we're going to look at. Uh, structure, the second word we're going to look at. And then strategy. Three words, stewardship, structure, and strategy. All right? Um, I normally don't do this type of stuff or literation or whatever, but, you know, I want you guys to remember this type of stuff. So if you can at least remember these three words... I think it would be helpful for you to think about how it applies to parenting. So the first one we're going to take a look at is stewardship. The first thing that you guys need to really understand, your kids don't belong to you. They don't, they're not your property. They, don't, they are not your property. You don't own them. They're on loan for, from God to you. I think it's super important for us to understand this because when, in fact, I wouldn't even go so far as to say that all things that we have in this life are to be stewarded by us. It's a gift from God for us to be stewarded. Um, the New Testament is all about this. Jesus, whenever he's talking about any type of situation, whether it be money, jobs, uh, abilities, gifts, talents, whatever it is, we, he always talks about it with the same thread interwoven to, through all of them. It's this idea of stewardship. In reality, all of us are stewards. If you got a job, you have a job because God gave you that job. Now, you, you can sort of become arrogant, prideful, and belittling of God by saying, or sort of living in sort of this illusion that the reason why you have the job is because you're really smart, because you, you know, bought it in the family, or because you got a lot of money, or you got a lot of talent, things of that nature. But the question is, where'd you get the talent? How'd you get into that family? You see what I'm saying? God put you there. God gave you the talent. God gave you everything you have to get that job, to be in that location, to live on the Central Coast. I mean, you might look at it and be like, I live on the Central Coast because I chose to live on the Central Coast. No, you live here because God allowed you to live here. You understand that? Like, you have a church family because God put you in a church family. You have a neighborhood because God put you in that neighborhood. You have a house because God gave you that house. You have a job because God gave you that job. You have a brain because God gave you the ability. He was able to put all these things together in your brain so that now you can think. You have children because God gave them to you. And they're to be stewarded. So the first concept that I really want you guys to catch is this idea of a steward. A steward is somebody that uses the things that he has not for his own personal end. Okay? A steward is not somebody that has something that says, my chief end in having this is to somehow bring about gain for myself. Now, a steward is somebody, I think about it this way. If you kind of worked at a bank and someone came to you and they're like, look, I got $20,000 I want you to invest it. Does that $20,000 belong to the investor? No. It, it, his job is to take that money and to make proper investments. So if the dude went out and he bought a brand new boat, that's, you get a lawsuit, right? Or something happens or, you know, calls Guido and Guido takes care of him, dumps the body off in the East River. The point that I'm making is this, is that you, you don't take things like that that have been granted to you or gifted to you and spend them on your own. That's when justice meets you, right? You get busted by justice. So the point that I'd make with this first statement is that 
we are called as stewards by God to shepherd our kids, to train our kids, to take care of our kids as if they're on loan from God. Now, it's very easy for us to sort of lose sight of this. Here's why. Because we, especially if you've got kids that are healthy and everything's going good and they're getting good grades, it's easy for them, for you to begin to think, they're mine. But, you know, to be honest with you, I, there's, there's a good friend of mine, a guy named Britt Merrick. He actually pastors a church down in Carpinteria. Um, his daughter, uh, when she was five years old, now she's around, I think she's maybe six. I could be totally wrong on this, but I think she's around six. Uh, her name is Daisy. She, they just, not even a year ago, found out she has cancer. They thought she was totally cured from it, and then come the beginning of first uh, week of June, they found out that she's got another tumor the size of a, you know, softball. They had that removed, so they're on second round of cancer. And uh, Britt was teaching, I encourage you guys, I think the name of the, the website is called PrayForDaisy.com. I encourage you to just go check that out at some point. Um, he's got a message on there that he taught about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and basically this is the first week after he found out round two of cancer returned. And uh, while he's talking about this, he basically just says, look, my daughter, according to the stats, she basically has between uh, a, a cure rate of, I don't know, 50 to 30%, 30 to 50%, thank you, that was my wife, thank you, between, she's always helping me out with the stats, so between 30 to 50%, she's got a, a you know, a, a cure rate, which, which basically means, he says, while he's talking, he says, that means that she's got a 50 to 70% chance of not surviving. And he goes, the reality is, is that I, I realize she's a gift from God to me, but she doesn't belong to me. And his whole point is that I, I know, I trust, I believe that God could heal her. I know that God can heal her. But I also know that just like any other family that suffers with stuff that, we, that we've suffered with, that God can also take her home. But at the end of the day, she's not mine. She belongs to God. The whole poignancy of stewardship comes home to somebody when you begin to realize you can potentially lose it, doesn't it? But when everything's going good, when everything's are, you know, wonderful in your life, everything's fine, your kids are healthy, you lose sight of this. You lose sight of the fact that your kids actually are on loan to you from God. Okay? So the point that I would make with that, ultimately, is that is when we live with that understanding, we realize that we also have a responsibility, just like Ephesians said, um, to bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. We live in a culture, I think, that really is sort of service-oriented. And what we are oftentimes trying to do, in fact, we, you know, we live in a culture where you, know, you can drop your kids off anywhere, and we even have churches that you know, establish things where your kids can go be dropped off and everything uh, can be done for you. And we sort of have this mentality sometimes, I think we even adopt it within a church, that the primary role of the church is they're going to help take care of my kids. They're going to raise them up in the ways of God. That's why I take my kid to youth group. That's why I drop my kid off at Sunday school. Um, and they will help raise my kid up in the ways of God. But the reality is, is that that's faulty thinking. It's, it's, not, it's not biblical thinking. It's not the way things work. And I would even say if you go that route, if you go that route, there's a good possibility that your kids may not get ultimately everything that they're intended to get. Because you may even look at it and be like, look, there's better teachers than me to teach them. That's very possibly true. I mean, just like I always look at the reality, look, there's a whole lot better pastors in the area of San Luis and on the Central Coast than me. But, you know, at the same time, God's called me here in the same way that God has called you dads to be in your family as the dad, as the primary teacher, trainer, discipler, instructor to raise them up in the ways of God. And to sort of delegate that off to somebody else, to pawn that off to somebody else, actually what you're missing out is the primary means by which God uses that in terms of the family to help train up and raise up in the ways of God is this whole concept of relationship. God does this through relationship. So if we want to see kids come to know God or have a relationship with God, the way that God establishes relationship with children is through the relationship of parents. So this is not just talking about stewardship, meaning my main primary goal is making sure my kids memorize 600 verses through Awana. Okay? I mean, Awana's great. I'm not knocking it all. But I'm just simply saying, if the main goal, if your main concept is all I really want to do is make sure that they understand the Bible or they, you know, have memorized a whole bunch of scriptures, and that's about it. It's sort of this hands-off training position where, you know, you delegate them out to other people or you sort of farm them out to other groups or communities of specialists to make sure that they get taken care of, then you are missing out on the relational aspect of engaging them in their lives. Does that make sense? 
We're called to be stewards. We're called to be stewards. Okay, the next thing that I want to take a look at real fast, next S word is uh, structure. I'm going to talk about a couple different structures, I think, that have sort of been established in our culture. Maybe you've noticed them, maybe you haven't, maybe you've, uh, sometimes, a lot of times, we don't notice things. It's like a fish knowing that it's in water. Fish don't know I don't think, uh, in water. I've never talked to a fish psychologist. I'm not really certain of that. But the reality is this, is that there's a lot of things that we just simply do as part of culture. We just don't even think about it. It's because it is part of culture. It's part of what we do. I want to give you guys two major models of uh, raising kids or structures of raising kids uh, that are sort of preeminent within our culture. The first of which is the authoritarian model. The authoritarian model. This has been around for you know, hundreds and maybe thousands of years. It's sort of the idea, man is the patriarch of the family. He's the dude that leads everything. He's the dude that's in charge of everything. Uh, his basic primary job is to tell kids, you know, what to do. He sort of establishes the rules, establishes the relationship. Kids uh, respect him because they're really just, quite frankly, they're afraid of him. Quite afraid of him. They're afraid dad's going to come home with a whip and whack him. And they're afraid of him. It's a, an authoritarian model. Um, I think one of the things that sort of happened more recently in our culture, uh, I would even go so far as to say that really all of us, all of us are sort of byproducts of this. Um, I, I like to read, you know, a lot of books on society and sociological studies and things of that nature. One of the things I kind of identified is that probably around the 1700s and 1800s, during the time of the Industrial Revolution, everything changed in culture. Here's how it changed. During the time of the Industrial Revolution or prior to the Industrial Revolution, most people lived on farms. They made their own food, raised their own cattle, they hung out in barns, they were all rednecks. And everybody lived together in community. You know, sons went out and helped dad. You know, I mean, starting like age four, he's out there like milking cows with dad. And, you know, dad's out, you know, shooting things and kids, or, you know, with bow and arrow, you know, whatever. Kids got there with his dad, he's helping dad, mom's inside cooking food and all that. So everything's sort of done in this communal type of a situation. And then comes the Industrial Revolution, where things sort of start moving kind of industry. Men start now moving to cities. They're starting to work away from home. The main primary means of making money and income is not in the home. Or around the farm, it's outside of the farm, outside of the home, it's in the city, it's in the industry, that's where he's making money. So what you basically have now is you have a detached dad who's still the authority figure. Do you get that? Sound familiar? You get a detached dad who's not connected emotionally, who's not connected in any type of emotional type of way with the kids, yet he's still the authority guy. And so what you end up having as a result of this is kind of in terms of a byproduct of this is you have an authority figure who's detached, who's absent. You have a mother who's frustrated and sometimes even gets embittered because she feels as if the main primary role of raising the kids is upon her own shoulders. And then you have kids that also get frustrated because either A, uh, you have a detached dad who's not connecting with them on an emotional level, who's coming home yelling at them because the bike's in the driveway or because the skateboard's you know, outside of the front door, or because the trash cans weren't brought in, or because somehow the, you know, kid whacked his older sister, and he's just frustrated. The whole idea, wait till your dad gets home. That's the whole idea. Detached dad, authority structure. Coming home, and all hell's going to break loose, because dad's home. And, and what that does is it breeds a lot of fear. So let me, the, the reality is, is that kids will obey within an authority structure. You get that? They will obey. But the way they obey is out of fear. And so kids, based upon temperament, here's what ends up happening. So kids that obey out of fear, that are born out of this fear-based type of relationship, they either, A, just succumb to it, they just kind of willingly bend to it, break to it. And you know what you have? You've got, a, you've, you've got children who've had their will absolutely broken and smashed. You know, some psychologists even show, you know, I'm not sure how you would identify or whatever, but some people maybe identify it and say they just don't have any self-esteem, whatever the case is, whatever. My point is this, I think I would just look at it and say, it's not so much that they don't have any self-esteem, it's just they have a dad that's really mean, who's always destroying them rather than being relational with them. He's an authority figure without any type of closeness or relational aspect with the kid. Or you know what else you have? You got kids that learn the system, they learn to play the game. So when dad's home, they look good. You know what that's called? 
You know what that's called? You know what the biblical word is for that? It's called a Pharisee. You train your kids to be Pharisees. That's what you teach them. So we got a lot of kids that are really, really good Pharisees. They know how to act the part. They know how to quote the verses. They know how to say the right things. But the moment they turn to a particular age, they bail. They split. They leave Christianity because it was, it was all nothing but lip service to them. There's no heart. There's no relational aspect to them. So if we're trying to look to bring our kids up in the ways and the admission of God, you got to understand this is not external. This is not just somehow trying to get them to achieve, you know, scripture memorization as great as that can be. But to be quite frank with you, I'd rather have my kids know you know, a handful of scriptures, barely do a good job of what they can, but have a heart that loves Jesus. I mean, again, if they love Jesus, then they're going to want to love God's scripture and God's word. That's going to be part of the whole routine of this whole thing. But that's the authoritarian model. The second model is I'm basically just call it the support model. And so what had happened kind of in reaction to this, I love uh, Martin Luther. I heard this the other day, and I love this quote. Uh, Martin Luther basically said, all history can sort of be summarized or, or characterized by a drunk man hopping on a horse. And you just get a picture in your mind of some drunk dude getting on a horse, and he is trying to balance himself, but he doesn't to balance himself right, so he actually falls off the other side of the horse. All history is like that. It's a drunk dude trying to get on a horse. Right? All history is one reaction, then you get another overreaction. And what you end up having is the same thing. Now, you see the same thing in churches. We're going to be one church, one generation, super legalistic. Next generation is all anti-law. You know, everybody just does whatever they want. Um, same thing with families. You get one family that maybe is like super ridiculously uh, overstructured, overorganized. You get another, you know, generation that's maybe like the 60s. Everything's just all free. Just do whatever you want. Well, the same thing happened in America. So I think what had happened, you know, I, I love... Um, one of the things that my, me and my kids, we like to do a lot is we watch, you know, uh, Leave it to Beaver. And, uh, you know, some people are like, those are better times. I'm, I'm not really sure. I mean, honestly, I, I watch Ward Cleaver sometimes. I'm like, that dude, I don't know. I mean, there's some things that he does that's pretty good. But I feel like, you know, Jew's a little bit kind of suppressed in her relationship with him. She feels like she's always walking in eggshells, always has that, you know, nice little fancy apron on, making cookies and stuff, and making sure the kids have, you know, the hand filled with, you know, milk in one hand and cookies in the other hand, you know. And everything is just sort of like, mm, we got to walk in eggshells. There's not a lot of relational love and, you know, openness going on there. And so what it, you had, I, I, I heard it was like around the 70s, uh, one of the major foundations in America called the Carnegie, Carnegie Foundation, they came up with sort of this thing to try to redefine the traditional value uh, structure of the family. And they began to realize, you know, it, it just wasn't effective anymore. And so what they tried to do is they tried to reestablish it and basically said that the main primary role of parents should not be um, institutions that give input or counsel or instruction, but the main purpose of parents should be just guiding, support, help kids do what they want. I've actually had teachers today. Anybody here who's a teacher? Any teachers here? A couple. All right, I've actually had some teachers tell me that um, this is sort of the mentality, the way that schools are work, worked out. Your, your, your goal as a teacher is not to, to, to tell them, to give them, or to impart to them ideas and morals and concepts. It's just sort of help them guide along, coast along. In other words, whatever a kid wants to do, let a kid do it, but just guide them. And, and I, I kind of look at this as sort of not just so much kind of the support model, but I, will, I would actually almost call it the passive model. So you got one model that's authoritarian, overly aggressive. You have another model that's more the passive model, where you just don't do anything. You don't set down any type of structure, any type of rules, any type of uh, administration of organization going on there. You just let the kid do whatever they want to do. And this equally is a type of system that will bring about destruction to the family. Let me give you an example of the way this kind of works. Again, take a look at this little passage in Ephesians chapter 6. It says this, Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. So whatever he's about to say right now about provoking your kids to anger is about to follow. So I, you know, I used to hear you know, pastors teach about this, and you know, fathers don't provoke your kids to anger. Um, you know, hearing, you know, fathers just have this tendency to kind of grate on kids and do bad things. I think sometimes fathers can do that. I know I do that sometimes. I don't know what it is in, with me. All I had were younger sisters, and I always picked on my younger sisters. Beat them up. I mean, I don't beat on my kids, but I picked on them. As a big brother, I'd always pick on my younger sisters. Sometimes, I honestly find myself doing that with my kids. And I'm like, you know, my wife just reminded me, like, 
don't do that. I'm like, I gotta do that. I can't do that. It's not good. I gotta sit down with my kids and apologize to them sometimes. I'm like, Dad, sorry, I'm picking on you. Sorry. And, you know, I used to hear people say that. That's what this verse is talking about. Stop picking on your kids and be nice. But in reality, what he's about to say right now in terms of don't provoke your children to anger is connected to what he's about to say right now. And here's what he says. But bring them up in a discipline in the instruction of the Lord. So in other words, if you kind of inverted that verse and basically said to not bring your kids up in instruction in the admonition of the Lord is to provoke them. You will make your kids frustrated and angry should you not take seriously the call to raise them up in the instruction and the admonition of the Lord. Now when they're young, you know, and you fail in these areas, there may just be some sort of sense of confusion. I mean, I, I always had, you know, maybe some of you guys had, you know, that, that kid in school who everybody thought was cool because he was the one kid who would sit down and like smoke pot with his dad or take shots and drink, you know, whiskey or whatever with his mom be like, that kid is awesome, right? But when he gets older, when he gets older, he's like, I hate my mom. I hate my dad. And the reason is, it's because his mom and dad tried so hard to be all cool with him when he was younger, but because they were not playing the role that they should have played, which was to be an enforcer of righteousness or godliness or truth or discipline or instruction, kid gets older and they just begin to realize, mom did nothing with me. Mom was like smoking pot with me and dad was doing shots with me. What horrible parents that I have. So they get frustrated with the parents and that's a whole other message. But my point is to say is this, is that the concept of discipline is basically to kind of give this idea of training. Uh, another word that can be translated there for discipline is training. It's the idea of giving some sort of support and uh, training network. The word for counsel can also mean, uh, or, or, dis, or instruction can also mean instruction. And it's the idea that both of these, discipline and instruction or counsel, the word counsel, it's the idea of coming alongside, helping, aiding. I think of the word uh, that describes Jesus. He's the wonderful counselor. Jesus is a counselor, all right? So not only is this role supposed to be in the hands of men and women, because again, the whole point, if you look at the context of uh, Ephesians chapter six, he talks about parents, you know, love your kids, and then he turns to the fathers. So the primary caregivers and instructors of the family are, are not to be parceled out to some other professional group, but really it's to be the moms and dads. It's to be the moms and dads. Somewhere between the balance of author authoritarianism and somewhere between the balance of just basically being passive. There needs to be some sort of active role. And this is kind of a third way that I want to present to you is what Ephesians basically lays out for us is this idea of raising them up in discipline and counsel. The point of the matter is this, is that if you spend too much time disciplining your kids without good counsel, good relational counsel, getting on your hands and knees with them and encouraging them along the way, loving them, being relational with them, you will frustrate your kids. Because what you will either end up having are kids that, like I said earlier, are Pharisees. They're trained, skilled Pharisees. Or you have kids that are always broken. Kids that are just destroyed, smashed, broken. They just feel as if they can never obtain to dad's standard of righteousness. Have you ever had that feeling? Have any of you guys been from families like that? Any of you? Okay, a couple of you. See what I'm saying? It's a horrible place to be. And the problem is, is that dads have this tendency to overemphasize this concept of discipline. And the main primary role of a parent is not to make sure that behavior is spectacular. Right? I mean, some of you are like, oh, good, because my kids are little devils. <laughs> little demons, all right? And that's not good either. I'll address you in a second here. But my point is this, is that... The, the reality is, if you over-discipline without the relational aspect of coming alongside them and counseling them, you will frustrate them, you will either destroy their spirit, crush their spirit, or you will train them, like I said, to be these little Pharisees. The second thing I would say with regard to that as well, if you spend too much time counseling them, trying to be their friend, trying to get down on their hands and knees, and just let them do what they want to do, just kind of be like, you know, if, you know, your little kid kind of smashes the toys, and you're like, now how did you feel when you smashed the toys? Does that feel good? You know... They're, they're, you realize, and you don't train them, you don't dis discipline them for doing things. Or they whack their you know, little brother or little sister, and you're like, how does that make you feel? That make you feel good? Good job, because that's what daddy does to me when he's angry. You know, I mean, the reality is, is that you need to set 
parameters of discipline as well. There's a balance here is what I'm trying to say. So what I'm trying to really establish here is structure. There is a good structure. You overemphasize rules, overemphasize behavior, you will get behavioral modification. But it's at the expense of creating Pharisees or very, very broken people. Or you'll create people that are, you know, overemphasizing the counsel part without any type of discipline or any type of putting the foot down and saying that's wrong, don't do that. You need to understand who is in charge here, that mom and dad are in charge here. And the reason why mom and dad are in charge here is because we're stewards before God. Our job before God is to be caretakers of you. Because we love you and because we love God, our job is to help raise you up in the fear and the admonition and the discipline of the Lord is basically what he says here. Last thing I want to finish on, if I have some more time, I'll actually have some question and answers, maybe myself. Uh, I want to wrap it up with some strategy. Um, Psalm 127 verses 4 through 5 says this, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is man who fills his quiver with them. Uh, so basically the psalmist points out, he says, look, kids are like an arrow. Back then, it'd be kind of like the uh, means to, you know, obtaining their food and whatnot. You know, arrows were very important. Um, but you always had an arrow that you shot at a target. And so the thing that I want to basically say about this strategy, you got to have a goal and a plan. You really got to have a goal and a plan. It's sort of the nuts and bolts of what I'm trying to drive out here right now. And the last thing I would just say with regard to this, this is sort of the approach that my wife and I have kind of taken is that our goal, our, our, the way that we try to parent our kids is to say, kind of start in the future. We kind of look down in the future and say, what do we want from our kids? Where do we want to see them? What type of relationships do I want to have with my daughters when they're 25 years old? And to be quite frank with you, I actually just did a wedding for a good uh, friend of mine a couple weeks ago. And one of the things I remember when I first met them, there were two twins, a gal named Jenny and Mandy. When I first met them, um, you know, my wife became really good friends with them. And I don't know, a good year or so into uh, having, you know, friendship with them. I, I noticed their relationship with their dad was just fantastic. And I, I, I don't know, we might have had young kids. I think our kids were babies then, were they? Yeah, I don't know, they were really young. Um, and, and so I, I remember looking at their relationship with their dad and thinking, that's what I want. I want some sort of relationship with my daughters the way John has with both Jenny and Mandy. And so I, I remember actually sitting down with John one day and just like, what do you do? You got to tell me what you do. And his advice to me was just, like, just, you have a good relationship with him. You love him. You spend time with him. You hang out with him. You, you date him. Like, that's good advice. I'm going to date my daughters. I'm going to hang out with them. and spend time with them. Because, again, what I'm looking at in terms of goal here, in terms of strategy, my, my, I'm looking out in the future and saying, what do I want to have in terms of relationship with my kids? As well, what's most important is what do I want my, my kids, where do I want my kids to be in terms of relationship with God? I want my kids to know God. I don't, I want, and, and, and so moving backwards from those, it brings me into the present and it sort of asks, causes me to ask these questions. It forces me to ask these questions of how do I want a parent? Okay, so I look at it and say, how do I want my relationship with my kids? So if I want good relationship with my kids where they respect me when they're 25 years old and when they're super excited and they're still coming to sit on my, on my lap when they're 30 years old and I'm an old dude, um, have a big long beard, smoking a pipe, and it's just going to be awesome reading theology books. And, and my kids are still coming and hanging out with me in my office. If, the, if I want that, then I, I need to look at it and say, what do I got to do now in terms of getting them on that trajectory so that one day in the future, that's where they're going to be. That's where they're going to land. So with that being said, I, I practically look at it and say, I want to have a good relationship with them. And so that means I got to be really real with them. So, you know, that word real, you know, it's kind of one of those overused terms in our culture today. But here's what I mean by that, is that I have a relationship with my friends, I ha- my, my daughters. I hang out with them, spend time with them, I date them. But I also have to realize that I'm also their dad. So there are times I, have to gotta, I obviously got to discipline them. There are times in disciplining my kids, I don't do a great job. I discipline them out of anger. So I fail them, basically. Because when I discipline my kids out of anger, I'm actually giving them the impression that God's ticked off at them. I want my kids to know God as a loving God. So part of developing my relationship with them is also part of developing their relationship and their foundational understanding of who God is. Does that make sense? So with that being said, everything that I do in terms of relational you know, agreement with them is also part of the molding and shaping process of how they're getting God, how they're learning about God. 
um, I'm going to be doing a men's study in the fall here. I'll tell you guys more about that in the next few weeks to come. Um, but one of the things that we're going to be taking a look at in terms of men is men as theologians. Men, all men are called to be theologians. Some of you guys, maybe you didn't know that. You're like, am I? I thought that was just for some dude who went to school. No, for all men. All men are called to be theologians. Adam was supposed to be a theologian. I mean, a studier of God. Problem is that rather than studying God, Adam allowed his mind to be perverted by the devil. And he took false doctrine in rather than good doctrine from God. And believed false doctrine, became a, fo- a bad theologian. And so the reality is every theologian has two aspects. One, he's a learner, and he's also an instructor. He's a teacher. So the question that I always have to wrestle with is what am I instructing my kids about God in my life? What does my life convey to them about God? If I'm an over-disciplinary guy, if, if, if I'm always telling them to shape it up and to look good, put on a smile, act nice, treat each other great, and always giving them these rules and, and, and criticizing when they do something bad, I'm giving them this picture that God's this grumpy old middle management dude in the sky that all he cares about is behavioral modification rather than loving dad. So... That means when I fail, and I've done this a lot, uh, honestly, I don't have my daughter. I'm not going to say this. I'm not sure where she's at. But I've, made, I've messed up many times. And there's times I've had to just go and sit down on the edge of her bed, hold her hand, and just say, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry Daddy failed. I was angry, and I raised my voice, and I was upset with you, and I'm sorry. Daddy just blew it. You forgive me. I've had to ask my kids to forgive me. And those moments are some of the most richest moments. I mean, they're hard. I hate having to do that because I don't want to do that. And for one, I, I definitely don't. I mean, I, I'm certain by, by, by chicks. All, I'm, even my animals are, are, are girls, all right? Even my pets are female, all right? The point that I'm making is this, is that tears can turn on pretty quickly in my house. <laughs> Everything can be drama. But at the same time, I gotta take that seriously. Even though I may feel like I'm right. Even though I may feel like I'm right. Even though maybe the nugget of what I did was righteous or justified, I still broke a spirit. I still wounded a soul. I still need to restore a relationship. And I do that all the time. So that's the relational goal I'm trying to shoot for. So with that, you know, like I said, I date my daughters, I hang out with them, because one of the realities is, is I realize there's going to come a day when they're going to meet some dude, and I want them to have a really, really high standard of a dude. Honestly, I want them to find some guy who's just maybe some, you know, if they run into some kid at high school, and the guy's just a, just a crazy, just nut job type of a kid that you normally find in high school, I want my kids to just be like, he's nothing like my dad. I want somebody who's got like my dad. And I, and, I, and, I, and I date them because I want them to get a good understanding of how a guy should treat them. When I'm on a date, I'm holding my girl's hands. When we're sitting down, just give them hugs. We, we, we have a trampoline in the backyard. We jump on the trampoline, trampoline. We invite friends over. We jump on the trampoline. We hang out with them. We spend time with them. When I sit on the couch with them, I snuggle with them. Before my daughter, Brooke, uh, normally goes to bed, she has this like little statement where she says, you know, 10 minutes, but she says it in this unique voice, which I won't give away because I you know, can't give away all my secrets. Um, and we, we lay in bed, usually for, you know, a handful of minutes, sometimes 10 minutes, and I'll just, I'll rub her head, I'll rub her arm, and I'll just, I'll pray over her, I'll touch her, and I'll just, I'll hang out with her, I'll spend with her. I want her to know that men's, a, a man's touch should be good. If a man ever tries to come along and touch her in ways that are inappropriate, she knows she can whack the kid or kick him in the where it counts and then keep moving on with life because that's not how daddy touched me. Daddy was gentle. Daddy loved me and he treated me like a princess. That's how I want my kids to know. Okay? Um, spiritual stuff. Like I said, it's, it's not just segregated. It's not just, okay, now flip on the spiritual hat and try and teach them about God. I'm teaching them about God all the time. Whether I know it or not, So what I'm trying to say. Most of the time, I don't even know I'm teaching them about God. Does that make sense? All of you are teaching your kids about God all the time. You may not know it. But what I'm trying to say is that when you have a goal and you ask yourself, what do I want to teach my kids about God, what do I want my kids to know about God, it helps you to make good decisions in the moment that are continuing to modify and impart good godly wisdom to their hearts as to who God is. 
that make sense? So that means like even times where we hang out, we do family meals together, which is something we like to do a few times a week. We're super busy. We don't always get to sit down and have meals. One of our things that we try to do is at least, you know, twice, sometimes three times a week, is just sit down and we have this nice candlelight dinner. Kids, we just really go all out. We have candlelight dinner. My kids all have a part in it. Usually my daughter Brooke's making these like little name cards and she's like really into this, you know, uh, play acting and role playing and stuff like that. Like, you know, you know, excuse me, can I take your order? You know, like, do you want milk or do you want milk? You know, I'm just like, I'll have milk. You know, and, and, and she's just really into role playing. She loves that. So we all play it up. We all have a great time doing it. And, and usually around the dinner table, we'll talk about God. We'll talk about what they're, you know, reading in their Bible times or what they're learning about in their life. And we pray. Oftentimes when we pray, I'll usually have one of my kids pray first and then I'll pray. His dad, I'll pray over the meal. I'll pray over their lives. I'll pray for, you know, different people that we know in our church and people in our lives that we just uh, feel led to pray for them. And that's part of sort of not just sort of separating a particular time, but really making it so it's special. Our kids enjoy that. Last thing I ever want to do is I, I don't ever want to force my kids to sit down through some sort of Bible setting and be like, Dad's making us sit down, read the Bible again. This sucks. It's horrible. If you're dad... You do that, stop. Figure out a different way to do it. Because the last thing you want to do is, I mean, honestly, the last thing you want to do is you want to make your kids feel like they hate God and hate the Bible and hate stories of the Bible. Figure out a different way. Be creative with it. Do something that's going to captivate their attention. Because at the end of the day, God is beautiful. God's a glorious God. He's so amazing, so powerful and mighty and great and is what we're imparting to our kids or giving to our kids a picture of the greatness of God. That's what we want to do. I'm done. Um, I'm going to pray for you guys right now. I think I have a couple more moments and maybe take one or two questions and then we'll wrap it up. Jesus, just thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, we ask you right now that you would just help transform us. We realize, God, that that all of us, uh, it's, God, we look at this and we just, sometimes we even wonder, why would you call us to be people that train kids that have been gifted to us. Lord, we know who we are. We know our failures. We know our downfalls. We know the things that we have need of help in. But Lord, you've purposely designed it that way so that we can be like you, so that we can depend upon you and look to you and call upon you for help and strength. So we ask that right now. God, I pray that right now for my brothers and sisters in this room right now. Help them to live this stuff out. Help them to be godly in their houses, establishing a proper balance between setting an authority structure, but also at the same time helping to guide and lead their kids, being good counselors that come alongside, but also at the same time setting up rules, but that proper balance by trying to really captivate and capture the heart. Because at the end of the day, a relationship with you has to do with a heart relationship, not a legal relationship. So help my brothers and sisters here to develop and cultivate the heart. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I guess we're done. I was thinking we have, a, we have 12 minutes, to be exact. So there is time for a question or two, and you can get a little preview of Wednesday. Um, if you have something that you're really burning to ask our pastor, he has to answer you. So he's offered it himself. Yeah. Um, just You were talking about like what dinner times look like, and... Um, Practical examples with, with smaller kids. Our kids are five, three, and one. And we try to create like a, a meaningful dinner time and have meaningful questions. But just maybe input for us as to what it looks like with younger kids. Yeah, a couple of things I would say with regard to that is one, you need, you need to know your kids. Everything's going to be different. So every, what I say is not going to necessarily work for anybody else. So you got to know your kids. you got to know their personality, their temperaments, when they're best alert. So if it's at like nighttime and, you're, and it's you know, 8 o'clock and it's like past your bedtime and the dad's like cracking the whip, he's like, read your Bible, and they're just like, ah, freaking out, you will make them hate you and not want to have anything to do with God. So you got to kind of look at when's, when, do they, when are they most functional. It might be, you know, for maybe younger kids early on, um, maybe, I don't know, maybe like at nighttime, you know, when they're all settling down, you want to get them settled down, get them in, you know, you got all boys, so maybe get them in a, in a big room and just say, you know, dad's going to read a Bible story to you guys. We're going to read a Bible story about Noah or whatever, and just kind of read some of those good Bible stories. There's some great Bibles out there that just sort of break it down in these chunks, and I would just start just by doing it like that, and, and maybe even acting out the Bible stories. You know, being like, okay, you're going to be a giraffe, and you're going to be a little pig, and, you know, and you're going to be Noah, and, and, and Daddy will be God closing the door on the ark. 
You know what I'm saying? Like working it out, like interacting, bringing them about interaction for them so they're getting it and they're, they're, they're liking it and enjoying it. I, I, you know, I actually heard Jews uh, used to put uh, honey on their tongue when they would read the scriptures to their kids. An idea in our, in our culture would be like, you know, giving them frozen yogurt or like, you know, a Sour Patch Kid or something like that. Being like, you know, okay, we're going to read the Bible. Here's a Sour Patch Kid or, or you know, a York peppermint patty bar or something like that. You know, we're going to read the Bible now. It's, it's a way of just helping them to just equate God's word was something really sweet and beautiful and good. So I would just really be careful to try to make sure that's what it is. We've, we've tried to make that easier too with a um, little plug here for our children's curriculum. And that is uh, the fridge cards, um, both for first look and as well as second through fifth, where you can just go over a mealtime. And it basically gives you, here are two questions for the mom and dad to answer that the kids ask. And here are the questions that the kid gets to ask at their level. And it's really a great, great tool you guys haven't seen the value of that. For us, I think we do more of, um, of a um, breakfast time. More when you say, honey, it's more of a breakfast time. And when we have it, you know, when I'm on my day off or whatever, or even like a Saturday, we'll, we'll bring that out. And we'll, we'll just, uh, that's how I can lead a devotional. And I don't even have to plan for it because it's already, there's the story, there's the scripture. They're already learning about it on Sunday anyways, so those are really, I encourage you guys, everyone, just to take advantage of those things, because they come out every week, it's not just uh, to make paper airplanes, like our middle son, we have to make sure we get it before they, he gets it, or else he's going to make a paper airplane out of it, but um, that's another idea. Who else has a question? So now that Brianna is going to high school, have you developed a game plan for dating and her social life, and... <laughs> All of that stuff. I've been sharpening a knife. <laughs> um, you know, honestly, um, yes and no. I mean, I think for the most part, I feel like most of what we've been doing has been preparing her for that. I mean, I have actually talked with my daughter. I mean, when she turned 13, I, I bought her a ring, a little promise ring thing, and we, we went out to eat and made a really special night. And just had a great date night together. And uh, sort, of, sort of like a graduation. Like, okay, you're, you're a teen now. And, uh, you know, I really want you to understand there's going to come a point where, you know, guys are going to come in your life. And, and um, it's, it's, you, you want a, a man that, that loves God. And honestly, I, I feel like really privileged that we've been around some amazing marriages in our church here. Younger people that we've just seen get married. So I, I, I have this amazing privilege. Just to, like, like we just had lunch with... Our friends uh, Jenny and Jonathan today, and, and you know, I, I feel like I can just look to Brianna and be like, see, Jonathan, to Jenny, that's what you want. You want that. And if you get anything other than that, just bail. It, it's, it's gonna, it will bring you heart, heartache, and it might even land the guy up in some sort of a shallow grave. Next question. Saw a hand raised over here. <laughs> See, this is prayer request time. We're going to pray for a pastor. And <laughs> his daughter goes into high school. We do a ministry on the inside of prison. <laughs> <laughs> we have four minutes. I guess you, did, you answered everything. That's amazing. Cool. They're all set. You're all set? Cool. No other questions? Yeah, one. Great. I was hoping. Hi, Brian. Um, you were saying that naturally you were teaching your kids just by how you treat them on who God is. The transition from that to them seeing that that is really God, does that happen? Or have you seen that happen pretty naturally? Because uh, I'm often, you know, I want my kids to see the Lord in me, but I don't know, you know, that transition will it, will, it, will it come very naturally as Ethan gets older? Does that, you understand what I'm asking? Like uh, we're supposed to be the example yeah. of who God is to our kids, loving them, exact, you know, doing those things. Um, but I guess I do have a concern that someday I'm not doing enough Bible teaching with them and Scripture teaching. You know, yeah, and you, I you feel know, like I fall short there more than relational with him. Yeah. So I'm nervous that he's not going to make the connection. Look, at the end of the day, to me, my approach is, is just be real with them. 
And, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think, I mean, again, here's my theory working on. I don't think kids expect you to be perfect. I think intrinsically they know maybe you're not. Maybe they know that you're going to mess up because you, you deal with it. problem is I think a lot of times guys don't confess their failures. And so they continue to create this air of I'm perfect. And, and I, think, I think because we're not God, our goal as parents is to help them to see God in everything that we do, um, in our lives. And so that means that even my failure becomes an opportunity to point them to God, to say, look, daddy blew it. Um, God never blows it. Daddy lost his temper, and God's justice and judgment is always righteous. Dad's is not. Dad's is not. And there's times I'm going to blow it, but God doesn't. So I'm always trying to look for ways to point them back to God's goodness. Because at the end of the day, all of our kids are worshipers, all of them. And, I mean, you know, this is one of the reasons why, you know, you know kids start even at, like, at a young age loving, you know, musicians and things of that nature because, or spark, sports stars. It's because we're always created to be in awe of something that's great. And so I think intrinsically kids sort of look at moms and dads as being the, the main source of greatness and structure in their life. And the older they get, the more they realize that that's just simply not true. And if, if dad continues to live with that mentality of trying to create that error that he is, he's just going to blow it. But it's better, I feel, for a guy to just sort of real, cause his kids to realize, look, I, I see what you see too. I'm a loser. I mean, I've, I fail. I, I blow it. I have a short temper, short wick, but God doesn't. Um, and I want you to see God as being great. I want you to, to know how wonderful our, our God is and to see him and everything. So that's what I would say with regard to that. So, I mean, don't, don't be discouraged. I hope this wasn't discouragement to you guys. Of like, oh, I'm not doing Bible study enough. I'm not praying with my kids enough. I'm not living life properly. That's, that's okay. We, that's, I mean, it's to be expected. But what should also be expected is for you to be humble about it and just be like, look, kids, I'm, I'm blowing it. Dad's trying to figure if things out. And if anything, could you pray for me? I mean, I've asked my daughter to pray for me. I mean, there's times when we finish things up and wrap it up and we pray. I pray for her. I ask her. I says, hey, Brie, you know, Brooke, you know, could you pray for daddy? Pray that dad has a better temper. Pray that dad is more loving and tender. And it's amazing to sit there and listen to my daughter in a humble tone, pray for me. I need that. She's my sister in the Lord. But she's also my daughter given to me on loan from God. So, yeah. Um, 758. One of the things, too, I think in, in the theme of the vision of this whole week is for you guys not to feel about, you know, walk away with um, this is how I, this is what I'm not doing. Like the great chasm that is what you're doing or and what you'd like to be doing is so great that you kind of just give up before you even start. And I just want to encourage each and every person here is that the vision and the desire and the goal for this week is that you would get one thing. One thing, just one thing to start in your life together as a family that has something purposeful in it towards God being more a part of your family. Just one thing. And it could be as simple as at the end of the night praying over your kids. Maybe you just don't do that. Maybe you just aren't used to praying out loud even, especially the dads, but also the moms. There could be just that, that you add in your life that's, Bringing God into those moments, those divine moments you're talking about, Brian, is uh, just one thing. Or maybe it's, we're going to spend one dinner together, not with a TV on, even if it's the World Series. Can, can I say one last thing yeah, before please, we wrap it up? Please. Um, I want to give you one last thing of advice that was really helpful for me. Um, you guys know who John Piper is? I was at a conference we did a few years ago that we brought him here and I was actually sitting at a table like he was right next to me and it was awesome and and we got a chance to ask him questions and one of the questions that someone asked him was about his kids and and this is some of the best advice I'd ever heard and his he's got older boys but then he adopted a, a younger gal who's like around 11 12 years old and he says what I I wish I would have learned when my kids were younger my boys but now they're older but now I have a younger girl um, to take care of her and he says I, I wish I would have learned that at the end of each day there's this window of time that her heart is more open than ever before and I think it's probably the same for all of your kids there's this window of time for my kids it's at nighttime 
there's like this window of five minutes, ten minutes. It's not that long. It's just a really short, small window of time. And it's usually when you're the tiredest. <laughs> For me, it's like when I'm the tiredest, when I'm just like, I'm ready to sit on the couch. And now my kids are getting older. They're getting to bed at like 9.30, and I'm like already ready to sleep, you know, at 9.30. And so when you're younger, it's like a little bit better when the kids are younger. But I, what I've been trying to do every night, I, I, I miss a lot of them, but I try every night to use this window of time. This is when they're most open, when they're willing to rub, let you rub their, their arm, when they're willing to let you pray over them, when they're willing to talk about their day, and they're willing to just really be open and vulnerable to you. It's like this window of time where the, where the soil of their heart is so just rich with nutrients. Don't miss those times. You don't have a lot of them, right? Your kids are getting older, so take advantage of that little window of five minutes, 10 minutes every night. Dads, do it. Don't miss out on it, because I'll guarantee you, now that you know this, when your kids are 15, 16 years old and they don't want to hang out with you anymore, you're gonna think back, you're like, oh man, I could have done this. But don't, don't live with regrets. It's, it's really simple to just sit down with your kids every night in just this little window of time and pour into them. Just, even if it's just praying over them, just saying, sweetheart, I love you, or you're such a good, good boy, man. You're, just, you're, you're growing strong, and you did a great job today. Just, it's, it's like really fertile soil. So, thanks, guys. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that uh, you are for our families, that you're going to impart the power through your Holy Spirit to give us um, the strength to take those small steps, God, towards um, really imparting to our children the, the most important things in life, God. The most important things, may they be first on our priority list, God. And may we even approach this whole idea of you calling us to be parents as a blessing, not as a hardship, to be a privilege and not a burden. Uh, Lord, to be a blessing above all things because you've imparted lives into our care. Um, we're not worthy. We thank you that you're patient with us as a father, first and foremost, and we can thereby love our kids with the same patience, same love, same heart that's uh, tender before you so that we can go to them and ask for forgiveness when we need to. So give all these moms and dads and those who are benefiting from this wisdom and uh, ultimately in response to your word uh, may you just empower us even this evening god maybe it's on the way home maybe it's tonight when they're tucking them into bed uh, let us utilize those times you've given us to really uh, go for it with them in their spiritual lives so we thank you for this time thank you for this evening we ask it in jesus name amen amen